Thank you, Becca and worship team, for leading us this morning. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Hope you have a copy of your scripture this morning. If you do, I invite you to find 1 Peter chapter 5, where we will be continuing our study uh, in the book of Peter, this letter that is written to Christians who are in now what is present day Turkey and the region that is a large region made up of many local churches, about the same size as the northeast of America. So it's a large area in which Peter is writing to people whom he calls strangers, and that's what we've been discovering over this whole summer, is that as followers of Christ, we are strangers in this land, that we are exiles and foreigners, and that as followers of Christ, we actually ought to be expect, we ought to expect to be pushed further to the margins. And the reason of that is because we are by faith united with Christ. We are lost in him. We are glued to him And what happens is that our story begins to look more and more like his story. This has been one of Peter's primary points throughout the entire book, which has been that as followers of Christ, we walk the path that Jesus walked. Our lives look more and more like the lives of Christ. So we are considered strangers in this world because Jesus was. Because he came to his own and his own did not receive him, they actually rejected him. He was a stranger to them, and so we should experience the exact same thing. Jesus lived a life that was filled with goodness and love and grace towards others, and we're called to do the exact same. And in spite of, or maybe it's actually because of Jesus' good life, he was rejected, he suffered, he was ultimately killed, and we actually ought to expect the same treatment, the same suffering for doing good for the name of Jesus. But as with Jesus, death did not have the final word, he was raised again to life, And if Christ was raised to life and we are glued to him, then that is our end as well, that we have the hope of resurrection. That is the big story of every Christian, that sin and death don't have the final word over us, that our lives end in resurrection because we're united with Jesus. It's the big picture, and it's also all the little pictures in between, that our lives are constantly filled with little death and little resurrection. We're called to lay down our lives, to die to ourselves, and in the end find that there is real life, real beauty in that, that there is resurrection. And that's where we're heading this morning. So if you have, again, your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen uh, up in front of you. 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll look at the first seven verses this morning. Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness in Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And Father, that's what we want to do right now. We want to humble ourselves before you. And we ask that by your spirit, you would take your word and you would shape us and make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as you kind of hear this passage read, there's at least a theme that jumps off to me, and that's the theme of humility. You hear it really explicitly at the end, and it's a little more subtle, but it's there in the beginning as well. This call to humility, we're called to to clothe ourselves with humility, to humble ourselves before God and before each other. 
then how would you, how would you describe humility? How would, you, how would you talk about it? What does it look like? Because it's one of the most important biblical ideas. This idea of humility is throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It's all over the place. And yet it's one of these words and ideas that I don't think we know really what to do with, or at least I don't. And maybe you go to the dictionary for help and you find that it's basically helpless and pathetic. But you find them defining the, the, the idea of humility as not proud or arrogant. Okay, we got that. But it goes on and it says that humility is having a feeling of insignificance or inferiority. You've got to stop and you think, is that, is that really what humility is? We all kind of have the big picture of uh, maybe the opposite of humility being pride and that very obvious when people make life about themselves and can't stop talking about themselves and all about me, me, me. But then is humility really the opposite, acting like you have nothing to offer? Acting as though you have no gifts, there is no benefit, you know, there's woe is me attitude, constantly belittling yourself, kind of like Eeyore on uh, Winnie the Pooh. Like, is that woe is me attitude, is that humility? I think it's actually false humility. It's, it's actually just another form of pride. Because who's at the center of both of those approaches to life? I am. Either I think I'm the greatest gift to humanity that God has ever given, or I have nothing to offer, in which case I'm both of those approaches are I'm at the center of life. Really, the definition of pride is pride is self-obsession. In contrast to that, pastor and author Tim Keller, in a really short but really, really good book, I think it's just a sermon that got turned into a book, um, describes, uh, the book is called uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, in which he's talking about humility, and he says that the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, but it's actually thinking of myself less. You catch that? It's not thinking too high or too low. It's actually thinking about someone else. And that's not just Keller's idea. That's the way the Bible describes it. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul, Paul writes and says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, he's contrasting humility with selfishness, thinking about self. But rather, in humility, value others above yourself. What is humility? It's valuing others above myself. It's not looking to my own interest, but to the interests of others. Essentially, humility is not needing to think of myself. It's freedom to be self-forgetful, as he titles his book. It's not connecting every experience and every conversation back to me. Thinking more about someone else, not too high of myself, not too low. It's actually putting the attention on someone else. True biblical humility is a freedom that is found in Christ where you are free from being self-obsessed and you begin to look to the interests of others and C.S. Lewis, in a pretty popular book, Mere Christianity, writes about the irony of humility. And he says that if you were to meet someone who is truly humble, you would not come away thinking, wow, they were humble. But he says, in fact, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. See that picture of humility? Genuine interest in what someone else has to say. And, and what Peter is going to do in this passage, he's going to push that into all of life for all of Christians. But before he does that, he starts with the leaders. And he says this in verse 1. He says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. And when he says elder, like, what does he mean? Who counts as an elder? Is he talking to the elderly? You know, those of us in the age of, 
I'm not stupid. I'm not doing that. <laughs> right? Is he t- like, I remember when I was a kid thinking 30 was old and 50 was ancient, so I'm not going to dig myself into a hole there. Um, so what is he talking about? When he says to the elders among you, the way that the Bible most often uses the term elders is more like a proper noun than it is a description of age. And so essentially what he's saying is he's talking to the elders, the leaders. In the book of Titus, again, Paul is writing a letter to his young disciple, a young leader in the church, and he says this. He says, I left you in Crete so that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint or ordain elders in every town as I've directed you. And Paul goes on to lay out qualifications both in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, which describe men of mature faith in which they are displaying the transformation that comes in walking with the Spirit, uh, who, who exemplify godly character, who are described as being above reproach, and they're given the responsibility of leading each local church. Throughout the Bible, these leaders are known as elders or pastors, which comes from the Latin for shepherds or overseers. All of those terms are used interchangeably throughout Scripture. And really, this is the way that God has designed his church to function, under the leadership of godly men. And at Shelton, we've tried our best to model our leadership structure after that as well. And we have 11 pastor and elders, and some of them are full-time paid, given certain responsibilities here at the church. And then we have a number that are what we would call lay elders. And lay elders is just a term that means not paid, but share the equal weight of shepherding and leading the church. And just on a real practical level, if you don't know who the elders are at this church, uh, most of them are actually in this room, um, but you take a minute, go to the church's website. And as Pastor Bill uh, may have mentioned, I believe he did maybe in the first service, this service, there, there's, you can see not only pictures in, and links to all of our staff, but you can actually see the photos of all of our elders here. And I encourage you to, to know them, uh, just incredible men, um, who are tasked with this responsibility of leading the church. And Peter directly addresses these elders in this position of leadership, and he calls them to lead with humility. Now, most of us in this room are not and probably will not serve as an elder at this church. Maybe at another, maybe you will. So if that doesn't describe you, please don't check out. There's a reason that Peter wrote this to the church, to the Christians, and he didn't just write a special, elder, uh, a special elder letter, but he wrote to the elders in the, in the community of the larger church. Why? Because these things he's about to talk about are things that we are to hold the elders accountable to. You're to hold me as one of the pastors accountable to. And secondly, while this is directly addressed to elders, it also reveals God's heart for leadership. This is not only applicable in its most basic fundamental idea, it's not only, most, only applicable to the official elders, whether you occupy that office or not, but it reveals the heart of God for those who would lead. You can even hear principles out of this of leading your family or community group or friendships. And so he says to them this, he says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. This image of shepherd in the scripture, as, as you probably are aware, is, a, is an intimate image. It's a, it's a gentle, loving picture of a leader who protects and provides for his sheep, gives guidance and walks alongside. This oversight is not oversight at a distance, but it's close up. 
knowing the sheep. And you need to know that as a church, the leadership of this church takes this idea very seriously and is devoting more and more time towards finding ways that we can care for us as a church. For example, uh, the group of elders that I was just talking about met this last July for over three hours for a night just because we wanted to sit and we needed to talk and, 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 and think and to pray for specific needs that we have as a church. We've prayed for many of you together by name. We've even invited some of you in and that you've come and we've prayed over you in, in one of the offices in between services. And we take this call very seriously because we love you and we want to care well for those who are here under our care. And this isn't just for the elders again. I'm just, it's so encouraging to see the way that this attitude, this desire to care, just has infected all levels of leadership here at Chelton. And I wish that I could give you all the stories of all the places this is taking place. Um, in the book of Acts, chapter 6, the elders are given this responsibility of caring for the, the, the church in Jerusalem. And they're overwhelmed. They want to provide spiritual care through prayer and, and teaching of God's word. And they also want to care for the physical needs, the clothes, the food, the shelter. And they're overwhelmed. And so what they do is they select deacons, servants, who will aid them in caring for the needs of the church. And here at Chelton, that, that has turned into two incredible groups of, of people. We have one group that is the deacons, who are men who are wanting to care for, the leader, for, the, for their whole church. We have a group of deaconesses, lady, female deacons, ladies who are passionately caring for many of us in the church. And again, I wish I could go story after story of how this is taking place. But really, all we have to do is think about how many of us in this room have received a meal after a surgery or we welcomed a kid into, and a child into our family where the deaconesses either brought a meal or organized it. So many of us. Many of us have already been contacted by one of our deacons because they're implementing what is called the deacon care plan here, which is a way that they're proactively saying, we want to not just wait till we hear about needs, but we want to know each person who calls Chelton home and, and reach out and say, is there any way we can care for them? Many of us have already been contacted by that. And I just want to say, too, that if you've, if you've been missed, if we have not cared well for you, if, if we've overlooked you in some way, please know that we'd love to hear from you. Our desire is, as a church, that we would care well for one another, which means if you have physical needs, if, if it's financial, if it's some sort of practical way that we can bless you, we want to know about that. We want to care well for you. If you have some sort of spiritual need, if you have a sin that you're struggling with, if you have things that you need guidance on in life, we as your leaders would love to come alongside you, to pray with you, to pray for you, and to give guidance as best we can. Because what this shows us about the nature of the church is so important, that the church is not a business. There are business aspects to the church. There are meetings and budgets and, you know, we have to abide by the IRS laws. We can't just do our own thing. But at the core of who we are, the church is not a business. The elders are not a board of directors. We are a family. We are the flock of God in which any leader is simply an under-shepherd at best, which is kind of ironic that the shepherds that are called shepherds in this passage are also sheep. They're also the flock, part of the flock of God that need cared for because ultimately there is one shepherd. There is the chief shepherd, as you heard in verse 4. 
the chief shepherd, Christ. Just another reminder that this church does not belong to any pastor, to any elders, or even a board of elders. But this is Christ's church. He is the head. He is the chief shepherd, and every leader that is leading is doing so on borrowed authority. But the elders and pastors are called to shepherd with humility, thinking of others' interests over their own, to do so in submission to the chief shepherd. And he gives three ways. So let's take a look at those real quick. First one, he says, is we're to be, the elders are to be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. This is not an obligation thing. This is a heartfelt desire and calling to care for the needs of others. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. In other words, not greedy. Not greedy for money, or maybe more applicable, not greedy for power or for people's approval. To be in a position of leadership is not to stoke your own ego and build up your reputation, but leadership is actually a means of service. Finally, he says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Position of leadership is not a trump card to be played, a power play, but instead it's signing up to be a humble servant. And again, if we think about the chief shepherd, if we think about Jesus, this is what he embodied, isn't it? He does this very thing. Jesus willingly, not out of obligation, steps to earth, takes on the role of a servant. He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. He doesn't do it in a greedy way because God needs nothing from you and from me. He doesn't need us. But thinking of our best interest, he came not to be served, he says in Mark 10, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And the chief shepherd, we look forward to his return one day, don't we? In which all things will be made right and we will see our shepherd face to face. And we look forward to that day. And until that day comes... Please know that really from the bottom of our hearts, the leadership here longs to lead. We are striving imperfectly, very imperfectly, but to lead in a way that submits to the chief shepherd and to humbly serve those under our care, which really brings us to the next kind of logical question is who is under our care? If that's who the shepherds are to be caring for, who is under our care? And that's one of the main reasons that we have church membership. Membership at Shelton is an increased level of commitment that says, I'm putting my stake down here. I'm throwing my lot in with you all. It's not in this casual, convenient type of way, but it's actually a covenant in which you bind yourself to this body and you pledge to participate in and to serve in this church here and to submit to the leaders. Maybe a good way to think about membership is maybe the difference between dating and marriage. In a dating relationship, if you're dating someone, there is a level of commitment to that, right? There's a level of security. There's a level of um, accountability or responsibility with that. But think about how all of that ratchets up a level in the covenant of marriage, in which you bind, one human binds themselves to another. Membership at Chelton is you binding yourself to this community. Because the call that Peter has is not simply for the leaders to act with humility and to lead with humility, but it's also for those under the leadership to follow with humility. He says, verse 5, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. And you see this posture of humility being called for in the younger. 
And again, I don't think Paul, or I'm sorry, I don't think Peter is trying to talk about age here. He's pairing them against against each other. So there's the elders. He says to the leaders of the church, lead with humility, looking out for the interests of the flock of God under your care. And those who are not elders, those who are the younger in contrast with the elder, submit yourselves to the leaders. And this idea of submit, it's really hard. I mean, it's really foreign to us, isn't it? You think about the way that we're trained to think of leaders, it's following the leader. From a very young age, you play the game, follow the leader. Or you play Simon Says, and you just do what they say until you don't like what they say, and then what do kids do? They have a little mini coup and overthrow the dictator and take their spot, right? I'll be the king. I know better. That's how we use the word following. Think about how we talk about following in the rest of our culture. We follow the news, but you can follow the news that's happening around the world from here. It's at a distance. We follow sports teams until they stink and lose too many games, and then we bail on it because, well, I don't have to. Or we follow on Twitter and Instagram and social media, in which the celebrities and the friends that we follow don't really have any authority over us at all, but are simply an option if we want to take their advice and, well, I don't really feel like opening that app today, so I don't have to listen. You see how all of those ideas of following shape the way that we think about leadership in the church. And yet the call of this passage is not simply to follow the leaders, but it's actually to submit. It's a much stronger phrase, to place yourself in a lower rank, to subject yourself willingly to the authority of another. It's important that we know that this call to submission does not give the leadership a lack of accountability. In fact, I actually think it heightens the accountability. Hebrews 13 talks about submitting to the leaders, knowing that they are ones who will give an account for how they lead. The humbling reality. And in our world, this idea of of submission is totally foreign, right? How are you going to get ahead in life? Well, submission and humility will not get you there. How do we advance Well, it's basically marketing yourself. That's essentially what social media does. Present what people, what you want people to see. In a world where we like to keep our options open and where the only thing we really submit to is whatever we are feeling in that moment, our feelings, this call to submission is countercultural. And as we embody this call of willingly putting ourselves under the authority of someone else, that act of humility will stand out and be strange. Now, if I can press this in in just one other area. Many of us, we were talking about membership just a minute ago. Many of us have, many of you have been member or been a part of Chelton, been here for many, many years. And quite honestly, to use the last metaphor, we've been dating for some time. And I'm going to make this real awkward. I'm going to go ahead and get down on a knee. And I'm going to ask you to consider this your marriage proposal. Come join us. Throw yourselves in. Bind yourself to this church, willingly submitting to the leadership. And some of you may look at this and go, that's silly, just as silly as me getting down on a knee. Feels like a formality. And everybody hates formality. Until something goes wrong, and you need something in life to anchor yourself to. 
It's in those moments where the covenant is most valuable. And if you're not a member here, I just want to invite you into a conversation. I want, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to hear your story. We'd love to hear what, what the Lord's doing in your life. We'd love to have a conversation about maybe membership and what that might look like. If you want to learn more or you want to be a part of that, this fall we have a class, it's a several-week class, where you can learn more of what membership means at Shelton and what it is that you're committing yourself to. We call it Shelton 101. Uh, you can hear more about that in the coming weeks and find Pastor Neil and ask him some questions if, uh, if you want to know more about that. But leaders are called to lead with humility, and others are called to follow with humility. And then Peter doesn't leave it there. He pushes it into all of life for all Christians. And he says, all of you, verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And as you might expect, humility before God, submitting yourself under the leadership of God, results in humbling yourself before others. In the same way you love the Lord your God, translates to loving your neighbor as yourself. Humbling yourself before God brings about humility towards one another. And he uses the image of clothing, right? Basically saying in the same way that you are wearing clothes and it's visible on the outside everywhere you go, that is how humility ought to be. And again, this makes no sense in our culture. But as strangers in this world, we play by different rules. We play by the rules of our king. We follow his path in which we don't look to our own best interest, but we look to the interest of others. We get a lot, and as we live lives of submission and humility before one another, thinking to others' interests, the world around will see something radically different. They'll see something that will bring about questions, as we heard in chapter 3. This pushes into all of life. There's opportunities to, to practice humility everywhere we turn. Ever think about a time when someone's telling you a story and they just missed a little bit of a detail, but you know the detail? And it's really, you, you just want to make, uh, that wasn't right. Let me, let me correct you. Or let me fill in the details, which then turns the attention from them now to me so I can show off my intelligence. That moment, that temptation is a moment to practice humility. Or they're telling a story and you've got a better story, Right? I actually heard two radio DJs talking about this how, yesterday, how no one actually listens to listen. We listen to talk. You just kind of wait till somebody's done, and then you can jump in and share your story. Or maybe you don't kind of go that way with pride, but you go the other way that we talked about earlier, in which you hear someone else's story, and immediately, instead of thinking about them, you automatically turn back to yourself and go, I don't have that. I didn't get to go there. I didn't have that experience. And we just turn all of that back towards ourselves. Both are forms of pride. Both are moments to clothe ourselves in humility. The desire to be right in argument. Mm. Live there. So what does humility look like? Humility might look like coming home from work and taking an interest in your spouse and what happened in their day. How was their day at work? How was the day with the kids? Taking a genuine interest in that. Asking questions of others and including them in the conversation. Could look like, right, one of my favorite passages, Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, to outdo one another in showing honor. Instead of competing to get honor for ourselves, our competition is actually to give honor. 
Maybe it's refusing to save face and defend yourself when you mess up, but actually confessing your sins to others. Even probably most obvious when humility is displayed is when you confess and apologize to those under you, employees or maybe parents' kids. When's the last time you've apologized to your kids? Ever think about why it's so hard to rejoice when others rejoice? Celebrate their victories and their accomplishments and celebrate the blessings that they've received? Because it's hard. Humility feels impossible. It feels like you're dying. Because that's exactly what it is. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. You can hear the death, right? So that he may lift you up in due time. Resurrection. There is no such thing as humility without death. Death to myself, to my pride, to my desires, to being the center of the universe requires death. And I kept thinking, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to do that? And yesterday we introduced um, another, another C.S. Lewis book, The Chronicles of Narnia. We introduced The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to our kids. Our son has already seen the movie and read some of the books, but our daughter, who's four, she watched the movie. We skipped the, the scary parts. But we got to the part, if you're familiar with the story, if you're not, you should go read it. We got to the part where Aslan, the king of Narnia, the lion, is, has been, just laid down his life and sacrificed himself for a traitor, and he's laying on the stone table dead. Lucy and Susan are holding him and crying. And he's clearly dead. And my daughter looks at me and goes, so when's he coming back to be alive? I was like, how'd you know that? How, how do you know that that's what's happened? She's never seen this. And I realized that's the problem with humility. We don't have confidence based on our experience, based on what we've, what we've had in life. We've become jaded to the reality of resurrection. We don't have the childlike faith that God will lift us up in due time. So why don't we humble ourselves? Because we really don't believe that resurrection is a reality in life. Because what happens is our fearful, insecure voice starts crying out that says, if I think about others, if I humble myself and I experience this death, who will take care of me? If I think about others, who's going, to ask, who's going to think about me? If I ask questions of you, are you going to ask questions of me? If I look out for your needs, who will look out for mine? What if no one realizes that I'm special too? What if I confess my sins and I apologize and I'm viewed as weak? What if I submit myself to the leadership of a church and they lead poorly, which they will? Or they make decisions that I don't like? You can feel all those anxieties growing inside, can't you? We think that if we clothe ourselves in humility, no one will look after us, which is why Peter goes to verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, on God, because he cares for you. Who's going to look after you? God says, I will. A friend, or I shouldn't say a friend, an author, I read a book and uh, the author described it this way. It's a phrase that's just stuck out in my mind. He says, we need to learn to mute our what-ifs at the bird feeder. And here's what he means by that. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's, he's preaching to lots of people who all have the same concerns that you and I have. What about fill in the blank? And he goes on and he says, all these worries, all these anxieties, all these concerns you have, 
Look to the birds. See how beautiful they are? Do they have gardens? Do they sow? Do they reap? No, but God cares for them. He takes care of them. Then he goes on, he says, look at the flowers of the field. Look how beautiful they are. They don't put clothes on, but look how God cares for them. Look at the flowers of the field. At our home, our dining room has a nice big window that looks into our front yard. And from the soffit, from the overhang of our roof, we have a bird feeder that Carter and I made a couple years ago. Surprise, this lasted actually. And in it, every morning we go and pull back the curtains with the bird feeder that is filled with birds, beautiful cardinals, an occasional blue jay, other birds, I don't know what they are, occasionally a squirrel, we hate him. He doesn't belong there. But these birds, and right under those birds, right under the bird feeder, are all kinds of flowers, which again, I don't know what kind they are, but they're pretty, they're pretty flowers. And what's happened is every time I pull those curtains back in the morning over the last couple of months, it has been this reminder that as I look at the birds and I look at the flowers, that God just whispers down, you want to know who's going to care for you? I do. I have pledged myself to you. I have cared for you. Let me remind you how. Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know what this means? This means that you have a God who has humbled himself, not looking to his own interest, but looking to your interest. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, even to the point of death, even to the point of being forsaken by his own Father ultimate humility because he trusted that there would be resurrection. He trusted that in due time, God would raise him up. And he did, and he lifted him to the highest place so that Jesus right now, you know what he's doing? He's at the right hand of the Father, caring for you, serving you, interceding for you. And the more we realize and the more we begin to believe that someone with that kind of power, with the universe at his disposal, cares about you, the more freedom you and I will begin to experience, that we don't have to be self-consumed. Jesus has got you. The gospel is what transforms Christians to being leaders who are humble, serving not out of greed, but for the betterment of those they're serving. The grace is what makes followers of Christ those who are willing to follow imperfect leaders. It's the humility of Christ that transforms us into humble people, clothed with humility, looking not to our best interest, but to the interest of others. And if God cares for you like that, then you are free. You are free from thinking about yourself. You're free to be self-forgetful. You're free to truly clothe yourself with humility. Let me pray for us. Jesus, as I think about us, who we are, it's 
baffling to think that you would humble yourself to become like one of us. You humbled yourself to the point of death so that you could care for us. You, the creator, humbled yourself before the creation. Lord, would that transform us in a way from the inside out that makes us a people that, is, that are humble, willing and ready to lay down our lives. And Lord, may we humble ourselves before you and may we grow to trust that you will bring resurrection in due time. Lord, increase our faith and we pray that for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen.